welcome to the Sui Generous Show, your unique perspective on everything related to your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. With Eric Amaro, I'm attorney Brian Jones, criminal defense and civil rights warrior. Today in segment one, we'll be exploring the verdicts in the Derek Chauvin trial, discussing a Franklin County increase in officer and deputy involved shootings of civilians and a federal judge who upheld a 20 year sentence for the police shooter, Michael Slager down in North Carolina, the officer who shot Walter Scott back in 2015. In segment two, as promised, we'll be discussing field sobriety tests under the NHTSA manual 2018 edition. To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Look to the law office of BrianJones.com and all of our social media outlets for everything you need to know about your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. Erica, did you see in the news this week that Derek Chauvin was found guilty of all three counts ranging from murder to manslaughter on Tuesday, April 20th? Wow. Well, this is what we've been waiting for. And I know that a lot of people are really happy uh, finding that he is going to get what he deserves. Do you mind going over what the penalties are that Chauvin is facing? Having been convicted of second degree unintentional murder, third degree murder, and second degree manslaughter. Under Minnesota law, each of these crimes are based on different theories of committing the same offense, the same offending conduct. Therefore, Chauvin will only be sentenced on the highest count. Now, his potential sentence for the second degree unintentional murder ranges anywhere from 10 years, eight months, up to 40 years. And like most states in the federal sentencing guidelines, there are a variety of factors that have to be met in order to depart from the presumptive minimum sentence. And that's based on factors that include things like prior criminal history, his responsibility in the particular incident, uh, and a variety of other statutorily listed factors. Now, in this case, the work is far from over for the attorneys that are involved. That's the reason sentencing is set out for nearly two months after the date of the verdict. Both sides are going to need time to investigate and present written arguments in favor of their position. The state has acknowledged they intend to seek a sentence of 30 years. Um, and the defense is asking for the presumptive minimum of 10 and a half years. Uh, I'm sorry, 10 years, eight months. Now, this time, the judge is going to consider those arguments and, and ultimately make a decision. There will be a, a pre-sentence pre investigation conducted, likely by the court or court personnel, um, and that will factor into what the ultimate sentence is. Chauvin will absolutely need to continue consulting with his attorney to determine whether he wants to say something at his sentencing hearing and if he chooses to say something at his sentencing hearing, what that's going to be. You know, there's, there's basically three options. Chauvin can stay silent and say, I don't wanna say anything at this point. Chauvin can say, I'm sorry, I take responsibility. Please don't send me away forever. Or he can say, the jury got it wrong. You do what you do. I'm gonna appeal this and I'm gonna continue fighting. So we'll have to wait and see uh, for about another seven weeks or so to find out what choice Chauvin is going to make. Yeah, I mean, that's going to be really interesting. And I did hear that the jury deliberated for 10 hours. 
Do you think that there's any significance in that amount of time? I'm not sure if it's considered a long amount of time or a short amount of time. It's pretty serious um, crime that we're dealing with today. The length of time that a jury deliberates is really unpredictable and really not tied to what the outcome is. You should be skeptical of anybody who claims to be able to read into the amount of a time that a jury spent deliberating and what questions that may raise about the verdict. It's a natural and normal coping mechanism under stressful circumstances that require waiting um, for people to you know, want predictions, want speculation. When I'm in those situations waiting for a verdict, I often tell clients, you know, if I were able to predict the future, I wouldn't be a criminal defense lawyer, I would be on Wall Street. Um, and if I were able to set odds, if I were able to, um, you know, if I were able to set odds on a particular outcome, uh, I wouldn't be a criminal defense lawyer, I'd be a bookie. Uh, I am neither of those things. I am neither a bookie nor a hedge fund manager. And so I'm a criminal defense lawyer. Now, every trial is unique. And even trial of the same case, which I've done, I've tried the same case three separate times after hung juries. Um, and with the same lawyers and with the same witnesses, um, the, the time that a jury spends deliberating will be different. And that's because you've got the you know, 12, 13, sometimes 14. Um, if, if you're in a state that allows alternates to participate in deliberations, um, you, you've got at least 12 individual perspectives engaging and participating in that conversation. Now, psychologists and jury consultants can claim to be able to read body language um, and you know, as a veteran trial lawyer, I'm going to tell you that the efforts and nuance needed to go into presenting a case to a jury is so great that it's not worth it to spend time trying to predict the outcome after the case is submitted to the jury. That's the time to sit down. I sit down with my client. We talk about anything other than the case. Uh, because we can't control it at that point. The only thing that's left to do is, is to wait and wait for it to come back. Um, I've, had, I've had felony cases, Erica, come back as not guilty verdicts in less than 30 minutes. I've had misdemeanor juries be out for hours on end. Uh, I remember spending, I remember being at a municipal courthouse one night until 1130 waiting on a verdict for a trial that ended at about 4.30 or 5 o'clock. Um, I've had juries out three, four days um, and, and verdicts that have gone both ways. So is there anything to be said about a 10-hour verdict? It seems like the jury likely, um, you know, everybody was in pretty close consensus when they started their deliberations. Uh, that's the only thing that I would be able to say about that. I mean, it certainly seems like it. And, and I do know that I've heard of, of juries that have taken days, like you've explained. And, you know, that can be really, <laughs> that's a real nail biter sometimes. So I, I, I think it's kind of nice that when you can get your answer a little bit quicker, as long as it's the fair thing. 
For sure. And, you know, the time that the jury spends deliberating is, is their time. Um, while I would love to be a fly on the wall, um, that's just not a realistic possibility in our system. Um, from, from being able to speak with some jurors after cases, what I have found is there's typically a, a review of the basics of the case um, and then a quick vote to see where everybody is and then discussion of the details. And you know, it seems like in this situation, that initial vote was probably all pretty similar. So do you agree with the trial court judge that the comments made by the public officials may have handed Chauvin an appeal? Handed him an appeal, I think is probably a bridge too far. I certainly understand the trial court's frustration with um, you know, the constant conversation regarding the trial, but I really see very little possibility of it creating uh, an appellate issue that's gonna overturn the verdict. And the fact that some Senator from another state made some comment um, really it isn't going to be part of the record. And that's what appellate courts make their decisions on. Those extra comments aren't, they're, they're not part of the courtroom proceedings. Um, you know, the jury in this case was sequestered for the entirety of their deliberations. Um, you know, they were, they were under very strict controls during that process. Um, you know, they were instructed as every juror, jury is to avoid media exposure during the course of the trial. Um, deliberations do require trust in the process and trust that each individual juror is going to uphold their oath to the court. Um, you know, I just don't see, is it going to be an issue in the appeal? Absolutely. Is it going to be a successful issue for Chauvin? I just don't see it. Yeah, I mean, you can't stop people from having an opinion and, uh, and blabbing about it in the media, especially nowadays, because there are so many different types of media and places where they can put that. Um, and even in the past, you've talked about how some of these organizations have used social media to try to almost advertise their opinion and sway the public's conversation. So, I mean, it's good to know, you know, what your thoughts are on it. Um, what do you make of the news of Chauvin's failed plea deal prior to the trial? So negotiations throughout cases are, are very common, especially in high profile cases, especially where the stakes are so high. And in fact, news of these efforts is, was very welcome among the defense community, some of which um, have been very vocally critical of attorney Nelson's, Derek Chauvin's attorney's work in this case. Uh, it turns out that the Chauvin team had tried to secure a plea deal where he would plead guilty to third degree murder, serve a sentence in excess of 10 years, um, and serve that time in federal custody and would not face additional federal civil rights charges. Ultimately, the state declined to accept that bargain and decided to put their case on instead. So uh, I, it, it kind of felt like throughout the trial that the defense team knew where the result was, was going to end up. Um, 
And it seems like with a plea offer to a charge of that serious of a nature, um, the defense team it kind of reinforces that idea. That the defense team knew what the outcome was going to be. Thank you so much, Brian, for that update and keeping us up on this case all along. I'm sure that if there's any appeal in the future, you are going to be there to give us your insights on what's happening. Absolutely. We will. This is certainly not the last time uh, the Derek Chauvin case will make an appearance on the Siri Generous show. But moving on, did you see in the news this week, a uh, recent study demonstrating that Franklin County, Columbus, Ohio, is the deadliest county in Ohio for citizens being shot by police officers. Of the 26 officer-involved shootings in Ohio in 2021, through the first four months of the year, six, 23% were right here in Columbus, Ohio. So what were some of the factors that were considered when they came up with the, these stats and this horrible prize that this county has gotten as, as being the deadliest? So according to the Ohio Alliance for Innovation, um, a study released in February of 20 of this year, 38 people have been shot and killed by the police in Franklin County between January 1, 2015 and December 31, 2020. Now that's in a population, in, in a county with a population of 1.3 million. That means 4.8 people for every million have been fatally shot in Columbus, Ohio. That puts us 18 in America's most 100 populous counties for police-involved homicides. Mayor Andrew Ginther has noted that the culture of the Columbus Police Department from the top to the bottom has contributed to the lack of accountability and the impunity with which citizens are being shot. These figures also apply to the Sheriff's Department, the Franklin County Sheriff's Department, not just the Columbus Police Department. So there's a deeper issue at the heart of law enforcement in Franklin County, Cincinnati, Cleveland, Toledo. These are the other areas of Ohio with high rates of arrest, the major metropolitan areas of the state, but they don't have the similar rates of officer-involved shootings. And it's important to note that while roughly 20% of Ohio's Black population lives in Franklin County, they account for more than 33% of the officer-involved shootings. I mean, we've talked about this before, and I know some of the reasons, but is there anything that they can do to help decrease these situations in these counties? I think what we're seeing across the nation is a variety of the steps that are necessary to reduce these, uh, these incidents of, of police engaging in the homicidal behavior that they're honestly becoming known for in modern day America. The Civilian Review Board here in Columbus is being formed as we speak. The city has cleared out the old guard leadership and intends to bring in a new chief to purge anybody that participates in that culture of racism, that culture that law enforcement officers are above the law and create a policing agency that respects the rule of law and respects the lives of the citizens that it's meant to protect. 
multiple states and cities are el eliminating and abolishing qualified immunity. I think that's critically important and needs to happen here in the state of Ohio. And there's increased media and public focus on the rainbow of changes. Most importantly, holding officers accountable. You know, I, I have, I feel like I have to say this every week because every week we have a new officer involved shooting. And what the statistics say is it's, it's literally every day in America. Every single day, a police officer kills a citizen. And more often than not, those citizens aren't armed. They're not engaged in any felonious behavior. Um, and it's just cops shooting people. And they're given the benefit of the doubt. They're not immediately put in handcuffs. They're not immediately booked. They're not immediately brought up on charges the way every other person in the country would be. And over and over again, they get away with using deadly force. And until they're held accountable in the same manner that any other citizen would be held accountable, these problems will continue to perpetuate themselves. Why, Erica, I, you know, just as a rhetorical question, why do the vast majority of people, even though we all know that speeding increases the likelihood that you are going to die in a car accident by orders of magnitude, everybody continues to speed because they constantly get away with it. Now, if we had tracking devices that measured our speed and every time we exceeded the speed limit by let's say more than five miles per hour for a period of more than five minutes. A citation just gets mailed to your house. I think speeding would be quickly eliminated if that level of accountability was held to the citizenry. Well, every time a cop shoots somebody, they should be booked they should be arrested. They should have an independent investigation conducted just like every other citizen would be. And just like every other citizen out there, if they're ultimately exonerated of that, fine, you can have your record sealed, but you need to be treated the same on the front end. I mean, I agree with you. And that is definitely an interesting way of handling it and you know really way more than a slap on the wrist which seems to be what they get now for such a serious serious thing as killing somebody so three month paid vacation you know administrative leave it's pathetic and it certainly keeps it going i mean you're saying one a day I had no idea that the statistics were so high on police shooting people that are largely unarmed. You're more likely to be killed by a police officer than you are to die at the hands of any wild animal. Wow. So in that comparison, it's almost like the police are the wild animals. Your words, not mine, Eric. Well, I'm glad that you're keeping us up on this. Um, what's next on the agenda for today? Well, Erica, there was an officer held accountable for 
his homicide back in 2015. And that officer's name is Michael Slegger. Now, Michael Slegger uh, has been working his case through the appellate process. And now his federal habeas petition has been rejected and his 20-year sentence has been upheld for his murder of unarmed Michael Scott in 2015. Wow. I mean... I can't even imagine after what happened that there is any possibility of an appeal. And I know there's there's always a possibility of an appeal, but the man shot someone in the back who was holding a bunch of sandwiches. I don't know how more black and white we can get with this particular situation. He was trigger happy. He did not stop and assess the situation. And now somebody is dead. That shouldn't be. And he lied about it. Let's not forget that. He lied about it. He, he lied about it and he let him just lay there without any help, right? Correct, yeah, and and let him bleed out. That's right, Gave, rendered no medical attention, which is pretty common for police officers. That's pretty common. So what can he say uh, to even possibly get an appeal? So he had pled guilty to a civil rights violation um, on the advice of his attorney. Um, and that civil rights violation resulted in death. And so that's the reason he got the 20 year sentence. So Slager is now accusing his attorney of failing to communicate earlier plea offers. And he's also attempting to imply that his, his attorney, Andy Savage, um, had some kind of improper motive in the case because uh, Andy Savage then went on to represent um, some of the black church members who had been present uh, during the massacre that killed nine people in the Charleston church in 2015, two months after Slager's arrest. So I, I guess I guess he's now finding out that his attorney is an empathetic person who represented uh, people who were emotionally and financially damaged by a racist massacre. And that somehow indicates that he wasn't fighting as hard for Slegger because I guess only racists can stand up for other racists. Um, it's important to note here that uh, Slegger pled guilty. He did so without any guarantee as to sentence and left it up to the district judge to determine what his federal sentencing guidelines range would be based on whether the, the crime was like a voluntary manslaughter type situation in the heat of passion or on the murder end of the spectrum. And the judge ultimately determined that this shooting was second degree murder because Slager put nine bullets in Mr. Scott's body and then lied and claimed that Mr. Scott was trying to steal his weapon. On review, Slager found zero sympathy from the appellate court, from the district court, um, and earned a scathing response in rejection. Uh, let me just see. The judge said in a quote, at sentencing petitioner attempted to blame the victim. Now he attempts to blame his defense counsel and the trial judge. But a careful review of his entire tragic episode makes plain that petitioner has no one to blame for his present predicament and sentence but himself. I mean, that seems right. <laughs> I mean, and your comment about, you know, only a racist can can defend a racist is exactly what I was thinking. And that is 
insane. I, you as an attorney, you handle so many different cases from so many different walks of life that you have to be impartial in picking your your clients. You're a criminal defense attorney and you're there to help someone get the best outcome. It doesn't matter that you're representing people on different sides of the fence, so to speak. Absolutely. And you know, my clients' personal predilections have no bearing on how I handle my case. Uh, just like the fact that I represent people who are accused of crimes has no bearing on my personal character. Just like it has no bearing on the character of any politician who goes from being a public defender into being a, a state representative, a senator, or even a candidate for the presidency of the United States. Uh, it's a job. And you know, at, at the, do, the, do the people at McDonald's um, have evil in their hearts and uh, a goal of destroying the world through slow cardiac arrest? I don't think so. I mean, I agree with you and, you know, I guess we'll see if an appeal comes up. I mean, I guess that's how people get appeals is by complaining about what happened during their trial. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. But I personally don't feel like he has a leg to stand on. So does Slager have any other avenues to continue his appeal? He can pursue pardon or clemency. Um, he can appeal the ruling on his habeas petition, uh, but he is nearing the end of the line um, of his legal avenues before just serving out the term. This is the end result of one of the many risks involved in taking a plea deal rather than going to trial. Um, you know, at trial, evidence is presented and there's a greater opportunity to create a record that's maybe more favorable on appeal. In this case, Slager seems like received a pretty good plea bargain. His state murder charge was dismissed um, in exchange for the federal plea deal. He avoided, therefore, a life without the possibility of parole term. He got to serve his time in a federal prison rather than a state prison, which generally viewed as more comfortable institutions, safer institutions. Um, and in fact, this is the bargain that Derek Chauvin was angling for. And now Slager is complaining that he got it. The reality is, is that no amount of lawyering can overcome uh, the amount of video evidence and malice that is readily apparent in both the Slager and the Chauvin cases. Well, thank you for giving us that update on what's happening with this trial is incredibly disappointing to hear that there might be an appeal, but we appreciate the information all the same. My pleasure, Erica. Now let's move on to segment two. You may have heard about field sobriety tests on this show among other places, but what are they really? And why are they such a heavily used tool by law enforcement? Today, let's do a deep dive into field sobriety testing as it's governed by NHTSA. Well, field sobriety is one of my favorite topics because <laughs> there's so much that can go wrong. And 
I mean, I guess they're judging on a situation that has so many different factors and so many different moving parts. So why it should be thrown out, which is why you need a good attorney if you get pulled over for drunk driving, because a lot of this stuff can get thrown out if you have a, a smart attorney who you know realizes there's some problems here. So let's start off with, you know, what is the NHTSA? The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. It's an agency of the federal government. It's part of the Department of Transportation. Its mission is to save lives, prevent injuries, reduce vehicle-related crashes related to the transportation of uh, human beings and goods in the United States. NHTSA enforces vehicle performance standards and works with both state and local governments to reduce deaths, injuries, and economic damages from car crashes, basically. NHTSA also manages investigations into vehicle problems and issues recalls when a safety issue is uncovered. Recall the uh, Takata airbag recall a few years ago, and my guess is Tesla is going to be getting a call from NHTSA here in the next couple of days over the battery that um, ignited and continued to burn for dozens of hours recently. So how did NHTSA become the standard for DUI roadside testing? So NHTSA began research in 1975 on how to test subjects for impaired driving. Uh, and prior to that, there were a variety of non-standardized kind of guessing games that police officers would use when they suspected somebody of impaired driving. Uh, the tests ranged from, you know, the classic, I want you to say the alphabet backwards to uh, taking a handful of change and dropping it on the hood of the car and asking the suspected impaired person to pick up the, the coins in the uh, lowest denomination to highest denomination or, or backwards, uh, highest domination down to lowest denomination. Um, you know, it was really a, a jurisdiction by jurisdiction type investigation. Um, but in 1975, these tests were developed. And by 1981, officers in the United States began using these standardized field sobriety tests to help make decisions to whether a person is impaired or not too impaired to drive a car. NHTSA developed a model system for managing the training of officers, and that includes publishing and updating both student and instructor manuals, providing all of the training materials, including handouts and PowerPoints, because as the name applies, the, the use has to be standardized to be reliable. The, the goal of this, the goal of all of their work starting back in 1975, was to create a scientific experiment or a series of scientific experiments to determine whether somebody is impaired by alcohol out in the field. And if you know anything about science, one of the foundational requirements of science is repeatability. And repeatability means you do the same thing over and over again and you get the same results as long as you have the same variable. And in roadside field sobriety testing, they call that standardization. So that the, the field test that you get in Columbus, Ohio, should be the same field test that you get in Las Vegas or Austin, Texas or Tallahassee, Florida. The most recent edition of their studies and their, their uh, tests 
is the 2018 version. Wow, I mean, I had no idea what the history was behind roadside tests. So this has been, you know, very interesting. I mean, you and I both know there's a lot of variations that they don't account for because they are standardized tests. Um, but can you tell us which are the standardized tests that we're talking about today? Well, I think you're absolutely right, Erica. And before I directly answer your question, I, I want to touch on something that you commented on, which is the variability and the reality of the fact that while we are trying to conduct an experiment on the side of the road, and while there will always be variables in any experiment that's conducted, the process of the experiment itself should be the same when the reality is it, it is never the same. It is never standardized and they are very rarely performed in the ways that are prescribed by NHTSA. Now to answer your question directly, Erica, the field sobriety tests that are standardized are the horizontal gaze nystagmus test, lovingly referred to as the HGN, the walk and turn test and the one-legged stand test. Now, what people may commonly think of these tests as the follow the pen with your eyes, walk the line and stand on one leg. Now, it's important to note that these tests are not valid for anybody with certain medical conditions, people that have lower body injuries, people that are 65 and older, and anybody who's more than 50 pounds overweight. They don't apply because those variables can cause somebody to fail the tests in the same way that alcohol impairment can cause somebody to fail the tests. And so it's impossible if you have any of those conditions to determine whether your age is causing you to perform poorly or alcohol is causing you to perform poorly. Now, we're going to get a closer look at each of these tests over the next few weeks. This is this is part one of a five-part series on field sobriety testing. Now, there are also a variety of non-standardized tests, and those will be a featured part of an episode in the future as well. We're not going to get into those today. Yeah, no, I figure because, gosh, you could talk for days about this particular topic, can't you? <laughs> well, it's going to be a little over a month. Well, good, because we really want to get into the nitty gritty on these topics. Um, there, there is so much to say. And now with the pandemic kind of where we're all kind of coming out of the, the pandemic, I'm sure people are going to be really itching to get out and and go have some fun. Hopefully they're safe. And if they do get pulled over, this information that you are imparting on us is going to help them. So what is the relationship between the field sobriety tests and probable cause for the arrest? So first we have to define probable cause, a reasonable belief that a particular crime is being committed and that a particular person has committed that crime. Now, police have to make that determination that there is probable cause in order to arrest a person without a warrant. And that requirement is based in the Fourth Amendment. Uh, no person shall be uh, subject to an unreasonable seizure, and I'm paraphrasing the amendment here, uh, the right of the people shall be secure against unreasonable seizures, and that right shall not be violated 
but upon probable cause. So either you got to get a warrant or you have to have probable cause to arrest somebody. So the officers are using the field sobriety tests to decide if there's a reasonable belief that the person is impaired, that the driver is impaired. Now, a probable cause for an arrest exists when they have that information in their personal knowledge. And in that regard, the field sobriety tests are used to create these specific facts and circumstances. So specific things that the officer can say. Um, I saw the eyes bouncing in the horizontal gaze nystagmus test. I saw him step off of the line in the walk and turn test. I saw him put his foot down during the one-legged stand. Uh, these are specific facts that the officer can put in a police report and can then come into court and testify to at a hearing or a trial to support their arrest decision. And those things can be challenged through what's called a motion to suppress evidence. And, and we'll be getting into that um, in the future as well. So the, the, the tests are a tool used to generate clues to support the probable cause reason for an arrest. And what may be the most important thing for everybody out there to know is that field sobriety tests are not mandatory. And the officer cannot take your license away if you refuse the field sobriety test. So what you're gonna learn over the next four episodes is why these tests are so flawed. And it's my opinion that you should never, ever submit to field sobriety tests. It is a rigged game and you will lose. Yeah, and if you haven't seen me in yoga class, <laughs> then you have no idea how bad it can be. <laughs> Um, well, I appreciate your letting us in on this little taste of what's coming up in the next few weeks. And I'm so excited to hear how you break this topic down and, and give us the all the nitty gritty details on why these tests go wrong so often and what you can do about it in the future. Absolutely. I'm glad to relay this knowledge. Uh, I think it's critically important to every citizen who is ever out on the roads. Um, I'm often telling people about this tidbit of information. Do not take field sobriety tests. It's a losing game. And people tell me, well, I don't drink. And I said, well, that doesn't mean an officer won't pull you out of your car and try and put you through the tests. Uh, nobody expects to be accused of a crime but anybody can be accused of a crime. So that's the reason we wanna get this word out there so that innocent citizens don't get hauled off to jail. Erica, I appreciate you participating in this discussion with me and everybody who's still with us right now, thank you for listening. In order to become informed about the latest developments and the biggest trials in the United States, make sure that you continue to follow us. In order to find out about police and government accountability, keep listening to our show. And in order to know everything you need to know about field sobriety testing, make sure that you continue to follow our show and listen in. 
And for everything you need to know about your constitutional rights, follow us on facebook.com slash Central Ohio Criminal Defense. Look us up on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at T-L-O-B-J. And all of our social media outlets for everything you need to know about your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. We'll be back next week with a new sui generis perspective on the next big thing in your civil rights and the criminal injustice system, as well as a deep dive into part two of our five-part series of field sobriety testing and looking at the horizontal gaze nystagmus test, the HGN or the follow my finger with your eyes test and what is accurate about that test and what is inaccurate about that test so that you can be informed. Erica, everybody out there, my grandfather always told me when we parted ways, hey kid, don't do anything I wouldn't do. And to that, when I part ways with my friends, I add, but if you do, when you get caught, call me. I'll defend your rights as I'd want mine defended. <laughs>